0: The K-Pop Podcast is sponsored by T. row Price. Are you looking to learn a thing or two about getting your finances in order, saving, and investing? Check out The Confident Wallet, a personal finance podcast series by T. row Price and The Washington Post Brand Studio. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Hey, everyone. I'm Jonathan Capehart, and welcome to K-Pop. In honor of Black History Month, all February, this podcast will be dedicated to featuring African Americans whose voices and perspectives you need to hear. We'll have a new episode every Tuesday. But if you're a fan of the podcast, you know we've featured prominent black voices all year long. So we've chosen a few older episodes to republish every Thursday to reacquaint you with some of them. To kick things off, We chose one of the most influential voices in the Obama administration you've probably never heard of by design. Broderick Johnson was cabinet secretary to President Obama, and you can find out more about him and how he's continuing to help the former president right now. Broderick Johnson, welcome back to Cape Up, this time as a civilian. (laughs) Thanks. Great to be back as a civilian. How does it feel to be in the private sector now? Life is great. You know, you have a little bit more
0: time, more time to spend with family, a little more income, life is good. <laughs> a, little, a, a little more A little, little, more, income. little more
1: income, yes, but life is, life is very good. And so now you're in the private sector, you're at this big law firm. Can you even talk about the kinds of things you're doing now? Or at least talk about how they're different from what you, what you did when you were helping to run the United States of America? Well, this is,
0: and this is my second go-around at Brian Cave, so it's, it's great to come back here. It's a huge firm with a 1,000 lawyers. My main focus is on public policy and government relations. It's where my expertise is, is in, but I also do work with other partners throughout the firm who do work on all sorts of traditional things like mergers and acquisitions and, and that sort. So it's a traditional law firm environment, but I'm very much focused on the work of the Washington office. Mm-hmm. So, so it's great to be back here,
1: though. And you're, you're not completely away from the old life that you had. And in that, I'm thinking of the My Brother's Keeper, and now it's the My Brother's Keeper Alliance. And then recently, it was announced that officially, the My Brother's Keeper Alliance is now a part of the Obama Foundation.
0: Yes, very important move. So President Obama asked me to ask the board of directors of the My Brother's Keeper Alliance if they would accept me as the chairman of their board. And they did unanimously, and that was I mean, a good thing.
1: Come on, was there ever was there any doubt that you know they would say mm, we're not going to listen to the former president? Uh, uh,
0: no, I don't think there was any doubt. But also, he was so proud of the work that they'd been doing it, and I was too. So it made an awful lot of sense.
1: Mm-hmm. So why why is it important that MBK as it's MBKA as it's affectionately known? Why is it important that it be a part of the foundation as opposed to being a standalone? entity apart from the foundation, Obama Foundation? Yeah.
0: So look, it started in May 2015, and business leaders started that nonprofit. They did it independent of us, but very much mirroring the work that we were doing in the White House. And so we were all very proud of the work as as it was going on. But we were asked, though, of course, probably by you from time to time and others, so what happens post-presidency to the My Brother's Keeper work? And President Obama kept saying, this will be very important to me. And then people would say, but through what vehicle? My brother's keeper came to be because of President Obama's vision. And it really drove a movement of people across the country. And so it was really important to make sure that the best and strongest signal possible would be that MBKA became part of the foundation. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you also, he was very much involved in that transition related work. Very, very personal to him. It wasn't like, okay, y'all go and do it and then bring it back to me. No, he helped us reshape a lot of what was important to him in terms of how we do this work.
1: Well, because I was going to ask you about the work of My Brother's Keeper Alliance for those folks who maybe need a refresher about what the alliance does, what, what the goals are. Talk about those and then talk about some of the things that the president insisted on changing now that it is. This is post-presidency. It's part of the foundation and the work will continue. Yeah.
0: So a couple of things I, I would say right at the core of MBK, the way it, it originated out of the White House, out of the president's vision, a comprehensive approach, right? So So from cradle all the way through elementary school and middle school issues affecting boys and young men of color especially through college and career so cradle to college and career strategy and jonathan you'll remember this was based on a six milestone approach an approach that we know relates to the periods in the life of all young people i don't care whether they're african-american hispanic white but all kids these milestones are important so we adopted that approach Second, making sure that the work was rigorous and therefore based on evidence and data, because President Obama was insistent from the beginning, this is not going to be about anecdote, nice stories about the impact. We're going to make sure we can measure that impact, especially through the work that we're doing across the federal agencies. Right. Third, making sure that, uh, that public and private sector partners work together on this work, whether it was through national organizations, foundations, and businesses working with us, or at the local level. Very important to have that collaboration happening between government and the private sector. And then being able to say, we're making a real difference. And so all those things carried on into the work of the My Brother's Keeper Alliance and are important to the work that that we do as we go forward, to be able to measure the work that we do, to make sure that it's got local partners who are very engaged, and being able to measure our impact.
1: Can you talk about, specifically in terms of, wasn't one of the initiatives about young black men in elementary school who were being singled out for punishment so and detention and things things like that
0: so preschool and nursery school suspensions right and through the data that was collected by department of education and I believe, the justice department we found that there were i think in 2012 2013 4000 preschool suspensions across the country. And 80% of those were children of color, and 80% of that was, was boys of color. And that was one of those statistics that was just so shocking. And people would gasp every time we would mention it. You couldn't find it hard to believe. But in fact, there was data that showed it, that little four-year-olds were being suspended from preschool. And so...
1: For doing little preschool things, if doing anything at all. Yeah,
0: you know, maybe being rowdy like all four, especially four year old boys, can be a little rowdy. Although I wasn't, but uh, <laughs> yeah. that's why they, that's why they sent me to Catholic school eventually. But but no, it was like shocking, and it wasn't. And you know, we weren't finding that there were mean preschool teachers. It's just they had not been properly trained, right, by their school systems and their school districts, but also by the private institutions as well that run these. To identify like what the issues might be like maybe this kid has a trauma related issue that is going on at home that he brings into the classroom or the preschool classrooms kind of seems like a, a little bit too formal a word, but it's just shocking. Right. And so we committed as part of MBK that we were going to see t- to
1: ending that and to work with incentives that we could do through federal resources mm-hmm. to do that. Now, in that answer you, you, and that was unintentional to get you to say the Department of Justice and the Department of Education, but what was powerful about MBK when it was a task force, when President Obama was in the White House, is that you had buy-in and help from the Department of Justice, from the Department of Education, to help with the goals of My Brother's Keeper. Um, and then there were some other things that the administration was doing that didn't directly impact MBK's work, but if they were fruitful and successful, they would have a direct impact in another way on some of the goals of MBK. And I'm thinking of things like sentencing reform, no longer you know, removing the, or reducing the focus on low-level drug offenses, the consent decrees with police departments around the country, and then what we were talking about with the Department of Education, now that there's been a change in administration and a stark change in focus, how does that impact what MBK is trying to do? So
0: we have to stay vigilant, given these things that are happening, Department of Justice issues especially, reversals of policies that were that were bipartisan in terms of the support that was happening right in reducing mass incarceration dealing with the issues around low-level drug offenses and the kinds of mandatory minimum sentences that had sent so many young people of color into jail into into that system into those pipelines you know the school to prison pipeline that we're seeing Yes, so we should be concerned about what's happening. And people are concerned. We hear this all across the country in these MBK communities. And so we have to stay focused on the impact of those changes. At the same time, we have to make sure that in these communities, in these MBK communities, and with these young people, that they understand there are other paths to avoid getting into what is increasingly a more dangerous situation for them.
1: Is it positive? Does MBK have to be leery or be careful about the work that it does or how vocal it it decides to be on particular issues given the new administration. No, I don't think we have to be hesitant about pointing out what issues challenge
0: our young people and where the disparities are. I think that's where we especially have to be vocal and we have to use data Right to point out where these disparities and these challenges are so that people understand it. Because, again, when people realize, for example, another statistic around the 30 million word gap, I don't know if you know this one, for example, but that between the ages of zero and three, children born in low-income communities hear 30 million words fewer than children who grow up in 30 30 million words. So we have to be vocal. And we were, we were vocal about that. And it actually led then to some competition that involved the private sector around dealing with that issue. It has nothing to do with partisan politics or directly government policy. But pointing that out and being vocal uh, has led to a lot of attention on an issue like that. Can I mention something else? though so when you were talking about it, sort of indirect help that came from some agencies? So when we started MBK, the Department of Energy was not one of our core agencies, right? But Secretary Moniz, then Secretary Moniz and folks uh, in his leadership team wanted to become part of MBK, so they did. And we added him as one of the task force members and got the help of of their agency. That led us to be able to do these events all across the national labs in the country to introduce young people of color to these labs, but also to career opportunities to be able to work in these labs, to be able to work around technology and science-related things, and to also understand there's a lot of money in that if you can get a career in that. So,
1: um, One of the things you guys did when you were in the White House is that you did town halls all around, all yeah. around the country, talking to young people, hearing what they had to say, their concerns. Will that be a part of, the, part of MBKA? Has to be. Yeah, so there
0: are different ways we did it, and we continue to do it. Regional summits, we had a great regional summit in California just three months ago, and there were 300 community leaders from MBK communities across California and from other states. And they were there to talk in cities, and they were there to talk about lessons learned and work they're doing. But we insisted, and they certainly welcome this, bringing young people from those communities to not just listen, but to participate and speak at those moments. That is so critical. You know, Jonathan, I think about some of the moments that were most impactful during the time we were in the White House, and it was around these town hall settings. And not just for us, you know, engaged in the work, but for President Obama, some of the conversations that he had with people like this young man, Malachi, who is now a leader of, in the MBK Boston It was from his conversation with President Obama that we learned some things about Malachi that the president addressed about connecting with his father, for
1: example. Mm -hmm. That's made a
0: difference in his
1: life. Uh, Stories like that are so important. He's the one who the president said to him, reach out to your father, get in contact with your father. Yes, yes. Because Malachi asked the president, uh, and this was actually the
0: day that MBK Alliance was launched. Malachi said, he asked him, how did you learn to be a good dad? You hardly knew your father. I barely know my dad. How did you become a good dad? And the president explained to him that the absence of a father in his life led him to want to be a great father one day. But also with Malachi to say, go and find your dad. Break the cycle. Find out what happened. And Malachi went and did that. And Malachi is just one of many incredible stories of these young folks that have been affected and who become leaders, not just their lives
1: are turned around, they become leaders. What are you hearing from young people today in this post-Obama presidency and this current Trump presidency about where things are going in the country? It's interesting. So they
0: don't – I don't hear a lot of talk about politics uh, I don't hear, I would have young people coming up to me saying, oh my goodness, what are we gonna do about what's happening with the White House? Uh, they wanna really hear about, is President Obama gonna continue to do this work? And they're elated when they find out about it. They also start off with, as everybody seems to with, tell him and tell Michelle Obama we miss them very much. But they continue to be very inspired by them and knowing that, you know, their lifelong mission is to help improve the lives of these young folks themselves. They believe that. And so they, they are incredibly hopeful, probably in circumstances that we as adults right, uh, find really difficult.
1: I want to bring you back to something you were talking about before, and that is that the work of the My Brother's Keeper Alliance, it's based on data, truth, information, uh, hard facts, evidence. And we're in a time now where truth and hard and fast evidence and, and fact – Are thrown into question, especially now when you have officials in the White House who go on national television and when faced with facts says, well, we're operating from a set of, quote, alternative facts. What do you make of that? What do you make of this time that that we're in?
0: You know, it reminds me of one of the slogans that we had in uh, in the White House, and I think uh, our chief of staff, Dennis McDonough, went and made sure that some some decals and stickers were made, and that was something that President Obama had said. I don't remember the exact words, but it was about avoiding cynicism. And that sticks with me very much today. Like all the stuff you just mentioned, I can't get caught in the cynicism, and I certainly can't express that as a way to try to get people to engage around this work that we do. its I think it was resist cynicism, right? So we have to resist cynicism. And that's something that we continue to have to make sure that we say. And a way, though, of making sure that we resist cynicism is showing that we're still there, right? That we didn't go away when President Obama left office, that he didn't go away uh, when he left office in terms of connecting with these young people.
1: Broadly speaking, I mean, you were the cabinet secretary to the president, which meant that you were one of the very few people who actually ran the the West Wing and the Oval, and you you were involved in everything. I'm just curious, of all the things we've learned about how the Trump White House operates, what's the one or three things that shock you the most? Well, I really miss the White House
0: a lot because President Obama ran an extraordinary White House. Extraordinarily loyal people who were committed to him and to the First Lady because of their character and because of the work and because of how we could affect this country. I miss that. I think for people in this White House who don't have that, it's too bad, really, because we had it, and uh, and I miss it.
1: Well, wait a minute. It's, it's, I'm curious. You use the word loyal. That's one word we've heard a lot with President Trump and the Trump White House. I would say that loyalty is a big thing in that White House, but... Is it that the loyalty in the Obama administration, yes, it was to the president and the first lady, but it was to bigger goals, whereas it seems like the Trump administration, loyalty in the Trump administration is loyalty to him, period. Different people have different reasons that they work
0: in this administration. And, I, you know, I'm not going to get into that. The loyalty that we had toward President Obama and to the first lady was loyalty that very much extended to respect for the institutions and respect for the people of this country who are relying on us to make a difference. And that's where that loyalty came from. It wasn't like loyalty to a party or loyalty to an individual, right? Um, but it was deeper. It was much deeper.
1: When should a person in those, in those positions, like the one, like the one you had— very prominent very powerful powerful position when should someone in a position like that resign from that position
0: that's such a that is such a personal decision i can only tell you for me if i was asked to do something that was contrary to my personal values in any job i've ever had i would have to step down but that's a that is a deeply personal decision that someone has to make
1: what if y- What if you were in a situation that, well, not you, I'll pull you out of it. What if a situation where someone is in the job and they can't leave for fear that if they do, the person who comes after them is going to is going to wreak havoc uh, either on the institution or on the country? Uh, that, I don't know. That's
0: such a hypothetical. It would depend on who replaced them and all that. But their decision about whether or not to stay is such a deeply personal decision. I just know how I would base my decision and have always about whether to stay somewhere. I've never been confronted, though, honestly, with a situation where I had to decide whether or not my ethics were running up against something that was quite contrary to me. That was being, you know, dictated by uh, someone who was unethical or expected me to be. So
1: let's get off this difficult topic because I can see I'm making was a you, philosophy I,
0: major. So you're not going like, ah. <laughs> to. I,
1: I can see I'm making you uncomfortable. So let's go to something easier no, no, like race. Race. Yes. Let's another go to something comfortable easier. topic. Yes. Let's go to something easier like race. So there's another member of my family you should talk to about race. Oh, yes. Well, your your wife, Michelle, she's got the, the race, the race, you're part, that plug the race for her? project. Yes. Yes. So. yes. Remember, I said that. Tell her. Oh, she's going to hear it. You can't edit this out. Um, <laughs> so we have to talk about um Ta-Nehisi Coates' epic, on-fire essay in The Atlantic, the headline, The First White President. I should have given you the assignment to read it. I don't know if you've even had a chance I've to read it. A, I've read it, yes. Okay, great. Just your initial reaction to what he wrote.
0: So, uh, you, you, you you must know this, but ta and I both come from Baltimore. So, that's just a trivia point you might mm-hmm. want to use. Uh, he's, uh, look, uh, and he's a great friend, and he is, uh, it goes without saying he's truly provocative. And he says things that make a lot of people quite uncomfortable. Uh, so, recognizing all of that, I'm not going to comment, though, on, on uh, his, his piece, personally, because... I'm just oh. not going to. I will, no, because I will say this about him. You know, he has a, a book coming out, mm-hmm. right, about the Obama presidency. And uh, one of the great moments I had toward the end of the Obama presidency was actually being interviewed by him about My Brother's Keeper. And so I hope that's in the book.
1: Um, well, let me ask you this broad question. In 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 the piece that I wrote about about nehisis piece, I wrote that— I am Martin Luther King to Coates's Malcolm x where do you Where do you fit in that in that spectrum wow, that's deep i' i don't know I don't quite know
0: I don't quite know I don't honestly there are things that he at that and I see a little bit differently at times but i but particular to this article
1: I'm not sure mm-hmm. I mean as I wrote my piece, I said you know. When it, comes to, when it comes to race, Ta-Nehisi, Coates, and I, we come at these things from completely different, from different areas. And that he is, as you said, he is more provocative than I would ever be. But with this piece, I was like, there's no daylight between, between me and him.
0: I just want to... So I would say this, uh, in terms of Ta-Nehisi's uh, a view of, of race and white people you know, that he's expressed, you know, in several different pieces over time. And he's expressed it in the context of President Obama. I mean, I and, and they do have a kind of a different view that... Oh, I've been in the room when there's different views have clashed. So it should be no surprise that I tend certainly tend more toward the way President Obama uh, has seen these issues rather than ta But that could be a, you know, matter of just um, attitude, right? But it could also be one just of generational... Related issues as well. I came up in a different time in Baltimore, in mm-hmm. a different time, just in terms of you know college and all that, than Ta-Nehisi did. More like Barack Obama's time.
1: Let me read this one thing from from Tanahasi's piece, and just. Get your overall, you don't have to, your overall reaction to the idea that he's putting out there. It says, the mind seizes trying to imagine a black man extolling the virtues of sexual assault on tape, fending off multiple accusations of such assaults, immersed in multiple lawsuits for allegedly fraudulent business dealings, exhorting his followers to violence, and then strolling into the White House. But that is the point of white supremacy, to ensure that that which all others achieve with maximum maximal effort, White people, particularly white men, achieve with minimal qualification. Barack Obama delivered to black people the hoary message that if they work twice as hard as white people, anything is possible. But Trump's counter is persuasive. Work half as hard as black people and even more is possible. And then he says later on in his piece, um, when talking about all the different demographic slices of the uh, white electorate that went for Trump, he wrote... It is as if the white tribe united in demonstration to say, quote, if a black man can be president, then any white man, no matter how fallen, can be president. And that's a lot. There's a there's a lot there to take in. Yes, there is. But to my but to my mind, and particularly to the way I've been feeling since since Election Day, there's I have a, I would have a hard time pushing back against that idea. Okay. So
0: I guess for me, the question is, but where does that then take you? What do I teach my kids then about how they react to these times? Right. And what do we tell the young brothers in MBK about what they do about these times? Right. Is it that they conclude that, you know, this, this is all so screwed up, right. That it doesn't matter what I do in life, right? Relative to say a white guy, that white guy over there because he's just going to get ahead because that's just what happens. And I just, can't, I just can't subscribe to spreading that point of view. And I will say this then about the young folks that we've met through MBK again. You know, I certainly have told people many times, it seems like for black folks, we have to work twice as hard, right? Sometimes we just have to work hard, right? Not twice as hard, but work real hard and demonstrate our, our, our intellect and to be bold. And I think about it with my own kids. They don't work twice as hard as the white kids in their class. They just work hard, right? They work real hard. And that's how they are getting ahead in life, is that they put their abilities on the table and they do their work. Right? And that's a non cynical view. Because if you take the view that you got to be twice as good, you got to work twice as hard, right? Then that can sort of lead you to say, you know what? I don't want to do that. I don't want to have to work that way and then still find that I'm behind somewhere. You know, it's just, it's unfortunate, but that's the way it is. These are, yes, there are systematic issues that get in the way, no question about it. Right? But one of the things we certainly learned from the Obama years is that an individual, right, committed, to a vision and a passion can make all the difference in this world.
1: What are, you have, you have three, three children. What do they say to you or what have they said to you about race or issues of race? You were mentioning before, generationally, you, know, they're, you, know, you and Ta-Nehisi Coates and I are different generationally, and yet your children are literally the future. And so what do they say about these issues?
0: Well, they're not. They're certainly not oblivious to these issues, and sometimes I have to kind of walk them back a bit and say, you know what, don't, no, 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 don't say that when you go to school. Don't take that approach. Well, don't say what? It'll be some things that they'll say that might sound like something in ta book. <laughs> I don't
1: know.
0: I mean, they, you know, they can be relatively militant about some things, right? But they just, they just go at it by just working extraordinarily hard at what they do and recognizing that it's not all just, you know, the rules are all set and they're fair all the time. They realize, you know, that, that some things still are systematically more of a challenge for them as children of color, but they are not cynical about it. i tell you that they are incredibly hopeful and they're not alone. They reflect attitudes that we see among kids who don't even have all the means that our children have.
1: What worries you most about the future?
0: Cynicism and people perhaps concluding that you know, all we have to do after these years is sort of be, you know, it's sort of in the partisan democratic political world. All we have to do is we need to be more like the people who are who, who gain power almost by any means necessary. Right. That's what worries me. Right. Is that that we, people will think that's the way to do it. And I am I don't think that's going to happen. But if there was one thing that that would worry me about the future, it would be if that takes hold.
1: Mm -hmm. And what gives you optimism about the future?
0: Oh, so much. So much. But uh, my children and these children all across the country that are getting the kind of help and investment, especially young brothers that they weren't getting before, uh, before Barack Obama started My Brother's Keeper. Incredibly optimistic when you see Malachi or you see Devin or you see these other or Noah realize that Noah, by the way, started as an intern, as a mentee and MBK. He's now a junior at Morehouse. Hmm. Right. And he's connected with his dad again. So, yeah, a lot of
1: reasons to be optimistic. Broderick Johnson, former assistant to the president and cabinet secretary and current chairman of the board. Of my brother's keeper alliance. Thanks for coming back on the podcast.
0: And I should add a partner, Brian Cave LLP, right? Because, you know. yes, because that's, <laughs> that's where we are. Thank <laughs> you, Cave, All right? Thanks. Thanks a
1: lot. Thanks, man. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor subscribe, rate, and review us? I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ.
0: If you like Cape Up, you should check out some of our other great podcasts. Like Can He Do That? with Allison Michaels, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. Or try Constitutional a series about how people have framed and reframed the Constitution over time from host Lillian Cunningham. You can find these shows anywhere you listen to podcasts and learn more online at WashingtonPost.com podcasts. The Washington 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 Post.